You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. And just keep it open because the first chapter is the text for the message this evening. Although in a few moments when we stand, we're going to read the first portion of the 12th verse. So you might want to look down there at that 12th verse. It says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. This evening, and by the way, I had no idea what was in store for us and that this message would be for me uh, when, I, uh, when I prepared this message because it has been on my heart for some time now as I think about the task before us as a church, you see represented up here, here are our goals for this year, here's where we are so far. When I think about that, I think about the fact that uh, it's going to take an incredible amount of faith on our part, and so during the next several weeks, I'm going to be preaching a message from the book of Exodus, or a series from the book of Exodus. And so you have your Bible open to Exodus chapter 1. And this evening, I'm going to be preaching on this subject, the necessity of affliction, the necessity of affliction. I think it goes without saying that there's not one of us here who enjoys having problems. We don't enjoy affliction. The word in the New Testament for affliction is an interesting interesting word. We would use the word vice. Uh, because it means an increasingly narrow place. It is the word flipsis, and, and it carries over from the Old Testament word here. The more they afflicted them, uh, the more they burdened them, the more they put the screws, put the clamps on them, the more they tightened them down, uh, the more they walked into this narrow place, the more they multiplied and grew. Now, not any of us here likes to have problems. I don't like to have them. If you like to have problems and there's something wrong with you, But I want to tell you something. If we're going to become a church that is like Jesus, we are not going to be exempt from problems. The Bible tells us, in fact, Jesus himself said that the servant is not greater than his master. And, of course, Jesus was not without afflictions. He was afflicted, the Bible says. He was not without burdens. He was not without having things which pressed down upon him. He was not without moments of grief, moments of trial. And neither are those of us who follow him going to be without those. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, you folks who uh, look at my life and think that I have great faith and you want to have the kind of ministry that I have, he said, are you willing to go through the kinds of problems that I've gone through? And then he goes on to enumerate all the things that happened to him, how he was beaten and left for dead, how he'd been starved, how he'd been imprisoned, how he'd been cast out of cities, how he'd been mocked and ridiculed. And he said, now, if you want the kind of faith that I have, you've got to be willing to have the kind of experiences which I have had. And so affliction is a necessity for every believer. And I want to show you why during these next few moments. Before I read this passage of Scripture and we look at it together from the first chapter of the book of Exodus, I think it's important to paint the picture. 
you need to understand where we are finding the people of God in their pilgrimage. Israel, Canaan land, it was known before Israel. Sometimes it's been called the land of promise. It's not always had the borders that it has had. Is at what geographers call a land bridge. For most of history, every major culture in the world has passed through its borders in its trade and in its wars, its battles, and in its migrations. And God loving us and wanting us to be a people of faith chose to make Israel, the land, a signpost at the crossroads of humanity. Now, the decision was made before the world began, but there came a time when God spoke to a man who lived in a large city in Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees. You can go over two or three countries toward Iraq and you find Ur of the Chaldees uh, uh, used to be in that location, a great metropolitan area. And here is a man of faith, a man by the name of Abram. And his desire to, was to move Abram from Ur of the Chaldees to this land of Canaan, this land bridge for all the nations of the world. Why? Because at that time in Israel or Canaan, uh, people worshipped and believed virtually anything. They were polytheistic. Many of them believed there were many gods. Uh, many of them believed that the way to God was by offering sacrifices, especially human sacrifices. And so it was God's decision to move Abraham, as he later came to be known, to the land we now know as Israel, so that he could say to the world, by being at the crossroads, no, there are not many gods, there is one God. No, the way to God is not through the sacrifice or through ritual. The way to God is the way of faith. And so Abram came on his journey, and you can read about this in the book of Genesis. Abram came on his journey to the land of Canaan. And when he got there, God said, I'm going to bless you in this land. Your children will be as many as the sands on the seashore. They'll be as many as the stars in the sky. And I'll give you this land, and I'll give you a name in this land. And you remember that Abram had a son, Isaac, and then uh, uh, Isaac had two sons. Of course, there were Esau and Jacob. And Jacob was the second born, but he was the one of blessing. First, he, he stole literally the birthright and the blessing from his brother. And then all of this was a part of God's providence because his brother Esau was a very carnal person. And God met with Jacob and God made the promises to Jacob that he'd made to his father. And Jacob ran away. And you remember that when Jacob um, was in the far country, that he, he, his eye, first of all, was set upon a beautiful young lady. And uh, he thought he was going to get her hand in marriage by working for her father, who was a kinsman of his, Laban, for seven years. And when he woke up the morning after the marriage, he realized his father uh, was his match. As a matter of fact, uh, Jacob had finally met his match. What goes around comes around. He had switched brides on him and given him the eldest sister. And so Jacob had to work another seven years for the one whom he loved. The Bible says, and they seemed as but a day unto him because he loved her. And you remember there was jealousy 
uh, between those sisters. And uh, children began to be born to Jacob. I mean, they almost had, they, well, they had a contest to see who could have the most, who could produce the most children. They, these ladies, and then their handmaidens, and, and Jacob's family began to grow. And then he began to grow in cattle, and the flocks began to grow. And God's hand was just upon Jacob, but he was in the wrong place. And so there came a time when Jacob determined that he needed to go back to the land of promise. And so he gathered up all of his family. The 12th child was born on the journey on the way back, but he had 11 sons at that moment. They began to head back to the land of Canaan. And you remember about that meeting with Esau, but there was a more important meeting than that. Jacob met with God at the brook Jabbok. And at that time, his name was changed to Israel. And God said, now, if you'll believe me, I'm going to bless you. If you'll live the life of faith, I will bless you. Now, there's a very important lesson, and I, I need to park here for just a moment, that you need to see. Jacob finally made it back to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. He had his family. And one of them, the youngest, Benjamin now, Joseph was the next to the youngest. Benjamin was the youngest. He made it back to the land of Canaan. But his boys had seen so much of the old Jacob, not the new Israel, that they started acting like their father. You see, what goes round does come round. What you sow, you also reap. Every once in a while I meet somebody who says, well, I'm going to live like the devil and I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to raise a godly family. Well, you'll still have to reap what you sowed. I know of uh, men who've come to the Lord later on in their life. And they've looked with, with just absolute uh, a shock at, at some of the things that the children have done later on. And they say, you know, I, I trusted Jesus, but those children saw that daddy living out of the will of God so long, and their life was affected by that. And unless they could come to know Christ, you know, they'd be just like him. And this is what happened to Jacob. His boys began to do everything wrong in Canaan. They were not worth bringing back to Canaan. Their lives were fouled up. They committed adultery. They committed murder. There was jealousy among them. And so now God's people were back in the right place, but they didn't know how to handle it. They had terrible lives. And so God engineered a way of discipline for them. It was going to take longer than one generation. They even sold their brother, Joseph, into slavery, and that was part of God's engineering, a way for them to get straightened out. Because Joseph ended up, as you remember, down in Egypt. And over a period of time when the famine came and now Joseph was in great favor with Pharaoh in Egypt and these the sons and Jacob were up there just starving, he finally sent those boys down there to get grain from Egypt. And you know the story. And ultimately, those 70 members of Joseph's family, Jacob and his children, end up down in Egypt. And they didn't stay there just for a week or a month or a year. They had to stay there and get completely overhauled by God. 400 years. You know why they were down there? They were down there suffering because of Jacob's rebellion. As a father, all those years Jacob had lived and his boys were watching him and then they emulated what he did and God had to take them down there to clean up their act and to teach them that they should not live by bread only but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They were to live the life of faith. They were to be obedient to God. They were to obey the principles of God and so they were down in Egypt. 400 years passed and that's where we find ourselves in the book of Exodus. 
Joseph finally died, we read in verse 6. And all his brothers and all that generation, they only went in with 70, we read there in the earlier verses. And we read in verse 7 that the children of Israel were fruitful and they increased abundantly and they multiplied. I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of them over the years. They waxed exceeding mighty. The land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph. I believe there is a sense in which we are living in a generation in America when we have leadership, many of whom have no comprehension of the true intent of our founding fathers. They have no sense. They, knew not, they know not Joseph. They don't have any sense of spiritual roots, spiritual heritage that was in the very founding of our nation. And they moved so far away from it. That's where we are right now. There arose a king who knew not Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and they are mightier than we. Come on, let's deal wisely with them lest they multiply. And so it came to pass that when there falls out any war, they'll join also unto our enemies and fight against us and let's get them out of the land. In other words, he said, let's, let's, uh, let's just make sure that these folks don't give us a problem. And so they set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, these huge cities and, and their archaeological remnants of these cities, Python, the city of Ramses, but now let's stand together and let's read this first part of verse 12. And let's read aloud together. It'll be up on the screen. Let's read it. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And so this evening I want to speak about the necessity of affliction. Father, thank you for giving us this time together. Open our hearts to your word, Lord. Help us to understand what you are saying to our hearts tonight, Lord. And Father, help us to look at the problems we have in a new light. Help us, Heavenly Father, to realize that we shouldn't just roll over and play dead when problems come. But at the same time, because we serve a sovereign God, and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, we can look at these issues and learn from them and grow through them and more importantly, we can glorify you in them. And so, Lord, show us the necessity of afflictions, how in them we become conformed to your image. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you. Be seated with me. All right, we got it now. 400 years, the children of Israel have been down in the land of Egypt. And God's getting ready to deliver them. He wants to move them back to the land of Canaan. But the truth of the matter is, life was good in Egypt for most of that time. And so the only way God could get Israel where they belonged was to make life unbearable for them where they were. And if you're having problems in your life right now, it could be if you would take a long, hard look at the struggles you're going through, that is God's way of moving you on to greater service and fellowship with him, conforming you to the image of his dear son. Now, why is affliction necessary? Let me mention three things to you. First of all, it is in affliction that our faith is exercised. Affl affliction exercises our 
faith. Now listen carefully. In the Hebrew language, faith is not some abstract concept. Faith is not a noun. Do you have faith? How much faith do you have? As if it were a noun in the language. Faith is a verb in the Hebrew language. If you will, if you will look in the Old Testament language, you'll discover they, they virtually have no word for faith, but they have words for faithfulness or for obedience. You can just check that out in a, in a Hebrew grammar if you want to. Because in their mind, faith is not something you think. Faith is not something that you feel. Faith is this, bottom line, faith is acting on the revealed will of God. Now listen, so faith was not real in the Hebrew mind unless it involved activity, exercise. Now if you don't believe that, you look in the New Testament in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and you will discover that there is not a person in that roll call, that hall of faith, there is not a person there who is famous for what he thought or she thought, what he felt or, he, or she felt. They are each famous for what they did in response to what God said. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Enoch walked. By faith, Noah built. By faith, Abraham went out. By faith, Moses forsook. You see that verbal action in there? And so there, it, faith is not faith until it's exercised. Spiritual muscle. Here's what I want to say to you tonight about this issue. Spiritual muscle is developed through the exercise of your faith. Spiritual muscle is developed through the exercise of your faith. Now listen carefully. And that exercise is, listen, is always an exercise against some kind of resistance. These machines, you go up in the exercise room of this church and you see those machines, those machines wouldn't do any good for you if there was not some kind of resistance involved, right? Those, you know, the, the, as a matter of fact, everybody's trying to figure out some way to develop muscles without resistance. Can't happen. See, muscle is developed by exercise against resistance. Now, if you'll hang on to your hat here, buckle your seatbelt, you'll discover something that really help you grow in your faith. Because faith is an exercise. It's not an abstract. It's not something you can have without doing something. You can't have faith and not do anything. That's why the Bible says in the book of James, faith without corresponding works is what? A dead faith. Faith without works is dead. And literally the Phillips translation, faith without corresponding works is a dead faith. It's no faith at all. Faith has an activity. Now let's look at it here. We read that... Uh, there was this king who rose up. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't know the children of Israel were multiplying. He was afraid that they would become allies of their enemies. In a time of a war, they'd have a problem not only on the battlefront, but from within. And so he said, let's put these people into shape. And so he set taskmasters over them to afflict them, to afflict them. 
And yet the more they afflicted them, the more resistance there was, what? The more they multiplied, the more they grew because they had to exercise their faith. Now, not one of us here, and I've said this earlier, not one of us here likes problems. I don't like problems. You don't like them. I don't want to go through them. I try not to, avoid, to, to invite them. When I see them, I try to avoid them unless it is absolutely necessary that I am involved in them. But I want to tell you something. If you are looking for a problem-less life, you are also asking for a faith-less life because it is through affliction that your faith grows. Let me give you an illustration of this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 talks about God's chastening, God's discipline in the life of a believer. And here's what it says in verse, verse 11. I love this verse. It says, Now no chastening for the, set, for the present seems joyous or pleasurable. But then it goes on to say, Now listen, But to those who are exercised by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And the word exercise that is used there in the language of the New Testament is the same word, gymnao, from which we get the word gymnasium, a place of exercise. So he says, look, when you have afflictions, when you have problems, that, of course, that doesn't seem joyous unto you. But if instead of running from it, if instead of dodging them, if instead of trying to wriggle your way out of problems, if instead of refusing to confront your problems, if you will work out with that resistance, take that resistance, and you know, after a while you lift little weights, you can lift larger weights. You lift larger weights, you can lift big weights. To those who are exercised by it, it yields something. It yields fruit, the peaceable fruit of what? Righteousness. God making you the kind of person he wants you to be. And so, affliction is necessary. Some of you are going through horrible things. Business misfortunes, family struggles, financial problems, physical uh, difficulties. Uh, just to name a few. Others of you, you've got your own. Some of you are fighting terrible emotional battles. You've got your problems. And if you just cave in, if you don't wrestle with those, if you don't find what God's Word says, if you're not willing to apply the Word of God to the issues of your life, then you will be a spiritual weakling. But affliction will exercise your faith. You'll build up spiritual muscle. Number two, the necessity of affliction. Affliction exposes your focus. When you're under pressure, we find out what you believe. What you truly value is revealed when? Under pressure. What's really important to you is revealed under pressure. Let me explain this. Teenagers, I can explain it uh, very easily with you and then, then with your mom and dad. Let me use an illustration. Okay, for some reason, your parents are, are careless and maybe not thinking, but they have said to you that it's all right to have a girlfriend or boyfriend over at your house even though they're not home, which is a foolish thing for parents to do, but for some reason that presents itself to you. And you make an even worse decision. You decide, well, we're going to do it. 
And so there you are. You're together. You're home alone. Now, you've forgotten that God's watching. The Bible says the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his goings. So God's looking, and he doesn't miss a thing. I mean, the light's been turned out. The Bible says darkness is like light to God. He doesn't miss a thing. But there you are. You're home. And you begin messing around a little bit. And, boy, I mean, the temperatures rise, don't they? And the pressure comes up. Now, lurking in the back of your mind are some truths that you learn in Bible. You've heard Shannon speak about these in your worship services. Things like this. Well, the body, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, and you may remember back there in the subconscious uh, some other words like this. Whoever defiles the temple of God, him will God destroy. But, you know, the pressure's on. And man, mom and dad are gone. And we're in this house. And who's going to know? And so after a while, under pressure, you begin to do things that you know are against the will of God. You begin to defraud each other. You begin to lead each other into temptation, make spiritual, uh, write spiritual checks that you can't, uh, or moral checks that you can't spiritually cash. And now the pressure's on. And we're going to find out real quick where your focus is. You see, your true value system, your value system is the basis upon which you make your decisions, what's really important to you. On the one hand, you know what God says. On the other hand, you know what your body is telling you you want. And in a matter of minutes, we're going to find out who calls the shots in your life. Is it going to be what God says or is it going to be what you Want. Do you get the picture? You see, it's under pressure that your true value system is exposed. By the way, that's the reason that most people who have problems in their marriages are people who have got in trouble like this before marriage. And they have said to each other, by the way, they've acted. I'll talk about God and I'll go to church and I'll sing those choruses and I'll make everybody think I'm spiritual. But by the way you and I handle each other in the darkness, I'm going to prove to you that God doesn't really call the shots. My body does. Ultimately, I'm going to get what I want in spite of what God says. You see the danger there? You see, your true value system, what you really value, is exposed under pressure. All you adults are saying, man, give it to them, Brother Tom. Well, let me just turn over here for a little bit. Income tax time is coming up, Dad, Mom. And you're going to be asked to put some things down. What were your expenses, really? Well, you know, I'm just going to take a step. No, 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 let's just talk about this, really. What did you do? You say, well, you know, I think they get enough. That's not the issue. What's right? Well, I don't think it's right. No, 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 what's the law? You see, we're going to find out real quickly whether you value what you want more than what God says. You see, it's under pressure. When somebody says, well, you can get this contract, all you have to do is give them a little bit under the table, and you say, man, if I get a contract like that, I could bless the church, my tithe would be big, man, I could help three and three. I, I'm going to give them a little under the table and get all that for God. God doesn't need that kind of help. God needs a perfect heart. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He's searching for a man whose heart is perfect toward him. That's who he's searching for, not somebody who's going to make money the wrong way for a man whose heart's perfect toward him. Do you get the picture? 
Now, let's see it in the scripture here, beginning with verse 13. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives better with hard bondage, or bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick and all the manner of service in the field, all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. Life got hard for the Israelites. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of which the one was named Shiphrah and the other was named Puah. And he said, now, when you do the office of a midwife, in other words, he said, you see this boy is going to be born. He said, well, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, save them. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God. Ooh, now we find out their focus. The midwives feared God. By the way, the Bible says that the governments, governments, human governments are a servant of God, a minister to God, of God for good to us. That's the reason we need to be the epitome of law-abiding citizens. But there is a time when civil disobedience is appropriate. Here we see civil disobedience. Here we see the government demanding that the people of God do something that was directly contrary to the commandments of God, and they said, we will obey God rather than you. That's, that's the only appropriate time for civil disobedience. But they rose up and said, no, we will obey God. We're not going to obey the government. There's a specific commandment of God that this is in violation of. If I have to go to a different country or if I have to, to make a protest or whatever I have to do, I will not disobey God. And so the midwives feared God. They did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they saved the men children alive because murder is wrong, you see. And the king of Egypt called the midwives. He said, why have you done this thing? You've saved the men alive. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, he said, well, the truth of the matter is, he said, these Hebrew ladies, man, they have these babies quick. Now, that's how you translate verse 19. And so God dwelt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty, and it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. He blessed them. Problems expose your focus. Pressure. When you get under pressure, even pressure to do something good. A lot of people say, well, I'm going to do a big good by committing a little evil. When you do God's kind of good, you don't have to commit evil. I'm going to obey a big principle by violating a small principle. When you understand God, you understand there's nothing such as small or large principles, and you don't have to disobey God's principles. But affliction exposes your focus. Why is this important? Well, it's important for you to know what kind of a person you are. It's important for you to discover through affliction where your focus really is, whether you believe God or whether you believe in yourself or you believe in other people. It's important for you to find out who you, whom you trust. All right, quickly, let's look at one final thing. And this is so very important. Verse 22, we discover that affliction expands your future. If you want to have a future that is blessed and more effective than your present, then you're going to have to suffer affliction. Write it down. If you want a future that is more blessed than your present, you're going to have to suffer some affliction. Now, here's what I want you to see. You see, it's through difficulty that God often sets the stage for greater fellowship with him and greater usefulness to him. Now, that comes to, to us through difficulty. 
I'll not take the time to read it, but there's an interesting passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 32, verses 11 and 12. And in that passage of Scripture, it says something very interesting. It says that God led the children of Israel out as on eagle's wings. It says, as an eagle fluttereth over her nest. Doesn't, sound that beauti- doesn't that sound beautiful? Here's a mother eagle taking care of that nest. That's not what's happening. If you understand eagles, what you understand is that the way an eagle learns how to fly is by virtually going through the experience of having its nest torn up. 400 years had passed. It was time for the people of God to go back to the land of promise. Because they were so blessed in the land of Egypt, it was not in their heart to go back. And so what did God do? God tore up their nest. God made life untenable for them. And what I want to say to you tonight is this, affliction. You know, we, we look at each other and we say, man, we shouldn't have to go through these afflictions. Oh, man, we're so sorry. You know, this is so terrible. This is so awful that we have to go through this. Now, sympathy is a wonderful thing. But let me tell you something. If you are not willing to go through affliction, then the limits of your ministry, the limits of your effectiveness have already been reached. There is no way for you to go on and be everything God wants you to be without going through some affliction. It's not going to happen. So this thing that's happening in your life right now that you're really bothered about, this thing that's happening is really a friend of God to you. It's getting you to the land, to the place in your life where he wants you to be. One of the um, most wonderful sermons I ever heard was the Sermon on the Pearl. Peter Marshall, a man called Peter. When Peter Marshall was the, um, was the chaplain of the Senate in Washington, D.C. He preached a sermon in the church that he pastored there called the Sermon on the Pearl. And here's the gist of the sermon. He said, do you know how a pearl is formed? Here's this gray, drab oyster on the bottom of the sea. For all practical purposes, worthless. Just a scavenger, really. I mean, we know that there's even little danger in eating them today because they really just feed. They just take the debris that comes off of the bottom of the sea. But an irritation, a little fleck of sand from the ocean's bottom enters in to that oyster and lodges there. And that oyster's got a couple of options. That oyster can, can try to expel that sand, get rid of the irritation, just get it out of its life. Or the oyster can cover or coat that sand with a film so that its sharp, rough edges don't seem as irritating. And so it begins to cover that sand. And then it covers it a little more. And then it covers it a little more. And then it covers it a little more. And pretty soon, that oyster has something within it, that drab gray oyster that men are willing to dive hundreds of feet to get and pay fortunes to own. And the bottom line of this message was that God brings irritations in your life. And your natural response is to say, I want to get rid of that. I'm not going to handle that. God's unfair to me letting something like that happen in my life. Or you can just begin to coat that with the love and with the grace of God. 
And as you begin to deal with that in your life, which is uncomfortable, that in your life, which has made life difficult for you, as you begin to deal with it by the grace of God, God will put something in your heart that people are willing to travel miles to experience. You've got something of value. Brother Ralph, would you do me the favor of bringing me that lamp? Here's a coal oil lamp, lantern. If you got up here real close, you'd understand why my office smells like smoke. <laughs> uh, this was saved out of the fire. Very few things were. Very, very few things were. But there this was. It literally, I mean, other than having a bunch of smoke on, which I haven't cleaned off, and somebody's probably got a good idea about that. But, um, I mean, this thing is, is as good as new. I, I came to the church uh, the other day, and, and uh, Rosine Spees and some of the other ladies were standing there, and we were talking. And I said, yeah, you know, uh, for all, you know, we got the pictures out, and I said, we found my Bibles, and they're all charred, but I think I can get them rebound, and, uh, which I, I'm, looking to, uh, I'm looking with excitement to that. And... Um, I said, we found our daughter's wedding ring. And I said, by the way, you know, it's really interesting. That the heat, they tell me the heat in that house was over 2,000 degrees in some places because there is metal that is melted that does not melt except in that kind of intense heat. Can you imagine that? And I said, but I found something. I said, it really meant a lot to me. I was so glad I found it. Now, the globe's gone, but, but the heat didn't do that. Uh, I think we did that. I think we broke it someplace along the way. I'm looking to replace that too. Used to have, you know, a uh, little stack in the middle and a big, pretty green globe around it. I said, really interesting. I said, you know, you'd imagine with everything else, I mean, just globs of metal here and there, everything else that had melted, that this thing would have just melted, melted down. I said, but this, this really meant a lot to me. I said, um, my mother used this as a study lamp when she was a little girl. And when she was 11 years old, their house burned down. And this is one of the few things that was saved out of that house. And it became her study lamp again. And later on, my dad got it, and there, he had a wire in it. In fact, there's the pigtail right there, and here's the socket up here where we put a lamp so it could be used as a study lamp, and it was in the house that I inherited along the way. And I said, ain't that amazing that that thing would still be around when everything else just melted. And Rosine said, you know why that survived? I said, why? She said, because it had been through the fire before. Now, you're going to meet some tests in your life. And if you want to meet them in the right way, in a way that honors and glorifies God, if you want your life to have more ministry and more effectiveness and more fellowship with God and more usefulness than what you have right now, then you're going to have to go through the fire. You see, affliction does what? It extends our ministry. It brings us to greater, cast us on God, brings us to greater fellowship with him and greater usefulness to him. You see, what I want you to see tonight, what I want you to take home with you is this. From the first chapter of the book of Exodus, affliction is necessary.
It has blessings. Don't roll over and play dead. Get up, seek God, fight what ought to be fought, grow where you ought to grow, but don't dodge the necessity of afflictions. Father in heaven, I pray, thanking you for this time together, thanking you for these dear people, thanking you for the lessons which you teach us. And Lord, I pray now that you would help us to look at the afflictions in our own lives and that you would help us to measure them by your measuring standard to see what it is you are wanting us to learn through the things that happen to us. And I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful and matchless name. While our heads are bowed and our counselors are coming, if you'll just remain seated right where you are in a few moments, we're going to stand. We're going to have a wonderful chorus of invitation. People will be coming. Our prayer warriors will be coming. Counselors will be coming. I'm going to ask those who are baptized tonight. We've not, we need to introduce you. You come and be seated over here to, my, to your uh, right. And um, yet there are others that ought to come. Some of you ought to just come and kneel here and say, Lord, help me to look at my affliction in the right light. The problems I have, the difficulties I've gone through. Others of you need to say, you know, God, you're instructing me to become a part of this church family. I need to do that tonight. So when we stand, just as a part of standing, why don't you just step out and just make your way down the aisle and tell one of these counselors, look, I want to join, we want to join this church. It could be that uh, the Lord has revealed to you that if you died tonight, you would not spend your eternity in heaven with him. Today, my wife walked into our motel room and we were amazed it hadn't been cleaned up. I was a little aggravated. I thought I was going to take a nap, and now we got a, somebody's going to knock on our door. So I went down the hallway, and I found the cleaning lady, and I said, would you mind doing this now? So she came in. Well, in our room, there's this huge bouquet of flowers sent to my wife by her sister uh, in honor of the fact that my wife's daddy's, the anniversary of his going on home to Jesus was the uh, day before yesterday. And so there are these beautiful flowers there, and there are just too many flowers for the room. We're sort of sneezing. They're beautiful, but... And so when she came in, I said, would you like those flowers? There was another lady with her, and she said, would I like them? Why, she said, uh, the other lady said, she's already been bragging for two days on those flowers, how beautiful those were, the lilies and the roses and, you know, that kind of thing, like uh, uh, Evelyn Lily makes, you know, and, and she's been bragging on them. And I said, you know, I'd like to give those to you. If you'll find you a big picture, I'd like to give those to you. So her friend went off to get a picture. After she left, I said to the lady, I said, you know, have you ever made the discovery of knowing Jesus in a personal way or would you say you're in the process? She said, you know, I think I'm in the process. I said, Eugenia, that's her name. Uh, would you like to know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven? She said, I sure would. It, it, I, couldn't, I couldn't abbreviate it very much, but just to tell you that she just got saved. I mean, just gloriously saved right there in that motel room, opened her heart to Jesus. Boy, I'm glad she didn't clean that room earlier. Man, I'm glad those flowers were a little irritating to our sinuses. I'm really glad about that now. I wasn't at the moment, but I sure am now because it became the means by which the message got to a dear lady who said, by the way, when I asked her, could one of our baptism teams come by? She said, I'm home every evening this week. Come talk to me. Now, you may not know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven. You can know that. You can know that. And if your desire is to trust the Jesus who died on the cross to pay for your sins and rose from the grave and is alive today and know your sins are forgiven, if that's your desire, when we stand, you come forward too 
Just tell a counselor, I want to trust Jesus. Let's stand. Father in heaven, how I pray trusting your Holy Spirit will just bring us now to this altar to say yes to you. Lord, I pray people will trust Jesus as their Savior at this altar tonight. I pray, Heavenly Father, folks to join this church tonight. I pray, Lord, that at this altar, people who are under affliction will understand that this can be an instrument that will increase their ministry. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.